Why the cross? There's other symbols that we could have used for our church, but the cross has become really the central symbol. We put it on churches and we wear it around our necks and we put it on Bibles and bumper stickers. Why the cross? There are other options. We could have used a dove. That would be nice. It stands for peace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Very biblical. We could have used that, but no, the cross. A bloodied beam of wood. We could have used a shepherd carrying a lamb. If you go to the catacombs in Rome today, you'll see that image. It was popular in the early church. But we chose a cross. We could have used the fish. That was a secret symbol for many of the Christians in persecution because the Greek word for fish is spelled with the letters that begin each of the letters of the sentence, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. A lot of early Christians used the fish. In fact, do you know that no early Christians used the cross as a symbol to identify the church? Not for the first 400 years. If you've ever seen a crucifixion, you would know why. It's not the kind of thing that you talk about in polite company. In fact, the, the early literature of the Romans and Greeks barely ever mention any description of the crucifixion. You, you see this actually in the Gospels themselves. They do not describe the crucifixion. Really, all they say about the crucifixion is three words. They crucified him. And if you saw one, you would know why. Not until crucifixion was outlawed by the Roman government because of Christians, was it ever a symbol that anyone would put on a church or put on a manuscript or put on a shield or a Bible or a bumper sticker. You have... You have to not have seen it to be able to use it. But there's a reason why it's our central symbol. And if you'd ever seen a crucifixion, you would know why. The cross and crucifixion didn't begin with wood. It began with a whip. Not the kind of whip you see in an old western where they crack the whip. That leaves welts. What they used was called a flagellum. It's a stick about yay long, and you would take leather strands and tie them to the end of the strip. And on the end of the leather strands, you would embed something sharp. It could be glass or bone or metal. The favorite for the Roman soldiers was knuckle bones of sheep. After they had dinner, they would take the the joint bones of the sheep, and they would embed it in these leather strands. The reason is they're sharp, they're heavy, and they break off in the wound. And they would take a man who is about to be crucified and beat him within an inch of his life. They didn't want to kill him. They just wanted to subdue him. So they tied them to a pillar and, and stripped them naked and with a soldier on the right and a soldier on the left, they, would, they wouldn't snap the flagellum, they would slap it. The one on the right would start at the right shoulder and slap it to the skin of the back and then pull down to the left hip. 
I don't want to be too graphic. But for you adults, imagine what happens over time with a hat's pattern on a man's back. It left over half of them dead just from the flogging alone. And then they went into mocking Jesus. He claimed to be a king, so they began a mock coronation and they stood him there and they said, well, he's a king. He didn't look like a king, but he says he's a king. So let's put a crown on him. Looking around, they found a, they found a thorn bush and they wove one of the strands into a crown and they embedded it in his skull. You know that your forehead has a lot of corpuscles in it. It would have been a mess. Oh, and the king, he needs a staff. So they got a, a reed and they put it in his hand. And they got one of the soldiers, probably one of the higher commanding officers, had an old faded cape he wasn't using it anymore. And it was a scarlet color or a purple color. And they put it on his back and said, Oh, hail the king of the Jews. And then using their fists, trained as weapons, they beat him. Isaiah 52 prophesied this moment when it said they would beat him beyond human recognition. Hail to the king. It's then that the crucifixion began. They took the cross beam of the cross, not the whole cross, just the cross beam. It's called the patibulum. It generally would weigh, our estimate is 75 to 125 pounds. And they ripped off the cape that had been on his bloody back. The coagulation in the cape was more than ripping off a band-aid. And they took that raw beam of wood and they laid it on him and they began to parade him through the streets of Jerusalem. Many of those who earlier had acclaimed him king now turned on him and cursed him as he jostled through these narrow streets. Why, why would they turn on him? You, you have to understand that for the Jews, the Messiah was a conquering war hero. Not, not, not a peasant. He wasn't a preacher of truth and justice. He was a warrior that would destroy their enemies. And clearly, he had not. And the fact that he was now being crucified by the Romans indicated in their mind that he was an imposture. And not just an imposture. He was one who endangered the security of our people. So he deserves what he's going to get. So they mocked him and they spitted him all along the road. At one point, it was too heavy, would be for any of us. And he fell to the ground. And they gathered one of the pilgrims who had come for Passover. His name was Simon, and he was from a place called Cyrene on the north coast of Africa. And they said, you, you, take up his cross. And they put the cross on him. And he had to bear the cross for Jesus through the Via Dolorosa. The women wailed. And Jesus, in the moment, it was so kind, stopped and said, ladies, don't, don't weep for me, but be warned, weep for yourselves, because this is going to fall on your children's children's children. 
when they got to the place of execution, they would take the stipes and they would, or the, the, the patibulum and, and connect it to the stipes. That's the upright beam of the cross. And once they had the cross assembled, they would lay him out and you know they nailed his hands and his feet. But it might be a little different than you had imagined from the pictures you've seen in museum galleries. Because it is not likely that they would have nailed his hand in the middle of his palm. Without going into the gruesome details, we learned after World War II that a nail on someone's hand will not bear the full weight of their body. The Romans, like soccer players, consider the hand from the fingertips to your elbow. So he, the nail could have gone anywhere in here. The most likely and the most reasonable, especially for Romans who experimented with this form of torture, is right here. You can feel in your own hand, you have two bones in your forearm, the radius and the ulna, and right between, in the back of this complex of wrist bones, you can feel between your own wrist. If you press hard, you'll begin to feel a pain going up to your elbow. That's your median nerve. If you press really hard, it will go up to your shoulders. And if you put a nail through that, it will send searing agony to the middle of your back. And that's how they pinned him to a cross. Then they went to his feet. Again, in the, in the art galleries, you see one foot on top of another with a really long nail through them both. That's not likely. In fact, we have found only one remains of a crucified victim, and it is his foot that was nailed. We actually know the guy's name. It was Johannan. It was in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. They found a box. And in this box, it was a small box of bones made for that purpose. His ankle bone still had a nail going through it, which is really rare because the Romans typically would retrieve the nails to use for their next victim. But Johannan was crucified on an olive wood cross. Olive is a very dense wood. It has a lot of knots. And you hit a knot, that nail is not coming out. And we actually have the nail in a museum today in Jerusalem. It still has a piece of the olive knot on it. It hit the knot and then curved. There's no way you're getting that out. In fact, it also had a, a, a small plate of wood on the outside of the ankle. Right here on the calcaneum is where they would put it. Put the board there and nailed the nail through the board into the wood. It was about a four and a half inch nail. If Jesus was crucified like Johannan, which is likely, then either they nailed his feet independently to the sides of the cross, which for a Roman has the advantage of pushing the weight of your body forward on the four focal points of pain. Or they would have cru crucified him with his legs to the front of the cross by twisting his torso and nailing each foot independently, which has an added advantage, even as I'm standing here right now, my right shoulder is going into a terrible cramp. And over hours, 
the victim would begin to convulse against the cross on the back that had been shredded. And that is the nature of crucifixion. It might surprise you that crucifixion is not immediately lethal. You, you don't bleed out from those four wounds. The average crucifixion victim actually lasted for three days on a cross. Pilate was surprised when Joseph of Arimathea came in the afternoon and said, I, I would like to take Jesus' body down because as Jews, we don't allow a body to hang overnight. We don't want to defile our nation. So allow me to retrieve the body. And Pilate said, he's dead already? Yes, he's dead already. Which is not terribly surprising given how badly they beat him. You may have heard that Jesus received 39 lashes because the Jews had a law that you could only lash someone 40 times. And so they stopped at 39 lest they miscounted and break the law. But remember, Jesus was not flogged by Jews. He was flogged by Roman soldiers. They have no limitation. I had a very strange experience with this. I, I had a group of students and I wanted to illustrate the physiology of the flogging. And so we actually got a, a hide of a, of a pig because the skin of a pig is anatomically most similar to humans. We strapped it to a tree and I made a flagellum out of knuckle bones of, I couldn't get sheep, but I got deer because they're pretty similar to the sheep. And at first I asked my students, which of you wants to flog the hide? And it was really quiet because, well, the implication, like, it was just too close. And finally, one student got up and he began to hit it. It took three swings before it became a contest between him and the other guys in the class. Like that, it became a circus to see who could hit it the hardest, who could cut it the deepest. One of my other professors, a friend of mine, leaned over to me and said, aren't you going to stop this? And I said, stop what? The circus that just reproduced the feeling in the praetorium of Pilate? No. Jesus was not a human being to the soldiers. He was a thing to be toyed with. He was a contest between them to see who could beat the hardest. That's the reality that Jesus went to even before the cross. And now that he's pinned to the cross, is it any surprise that he died in six hours? From nine to noon, the sun shone. But between noon and three when he died, it got pitch black. Miraculously black. The light of the world died in the darkness of our sin. And there, pinned between heaven and earth, do you know the first thing Jesus said? First thing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And any Christian who is holding a grudge against another human being, 
ought to remember the contorted body of Christ on a cross because this is why we chose the cross as our central symbol. It is not just what he did for us, but what he allows us to do for others, to live a different kind of a life that is willing to suffer for others. Remember, Jesus didn't just take up his cross. He told you to take up your cross and follow him, imitating his sacrifice and his suffering for others. And it wasn't just his enemies. You might recall that while on the cross, he looks down, almost all of his followers were MIA. Just a few women. His mother, Mary Magdalene, Salome, they were there. And so was John, the beloved apostle. And Jesus looked down from the cross and he said, John, this is your mother. Take care of your mother. And mother, this is your son. Behold your son. She had other children who could take care of her, but they weren't believers. And so his dying wish through John for his mother was that she would be cared for by a Christian. And according to tradition, that is exactly what happened. But what strikes me, and I hope it strikes you too, is that in the midst of Jesus' deepest suffering, in his darkest hour, he was still thinking about others. He was still thinking about you. And whatever you're going through, know this, it is not more than what Jesus went through. And while he was going through it, you were on his mind. You were on his heart. The third thing that Jesus said from the cross, it is stunning. It's not exactly a prayer. It's really quoting of scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes from Psalm 22, verse 1. And, and maybe you're asking, why, why would God forsake his son? He didn't. On the cross, and I don't know the physics of how this works, but on the cross, Jesus changed into sin itself. Your sin and my sin was embodied in him. And the reason it got dark is because God always turns his back on sin, not the sinner, but on sin itself. And God punished sin in the body of his son so that we could go free. That's why the cross, that's why it's become as unlikely a candidate as it is the central symbol of Christianity. But there's something else in that quote that we dare not miss. He quoted from Psalm 22. Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd, is the shepherd's psalm. Psalm 22 is the song of the lamb. And it is the most detailed description of crucifixion in any literature of all time. Psalm 22 describes how his enemies surrounded him. It predicts that they would gamble for his garments. 
It describes, you could see all my bones. My heart melts like wax. My hands and my feet, they have pierced. All of these descriptions come from a passage, a prophecy, a thousand years before Jesus died, but 600 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. What you should know is that this is not an accident. This event was not the avarice of men running wild. It's not a runaway train that somehow got out of God's control. This was God's plan. I suppose in a sense that I put Jesus on a cross with my sin, so did you. And in a sense, the Jews were culpable because they turned him over to Pilate. And Pilate, obviously, he took charge and he sentenced him to death. There, there are others responsible. But before any others entered the scene, God said, I choose to give my son for the sins of the world. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. In some ways, I can't figure out why God would do that. I can't figure out how his death covers my sin. But by faith, I know that it is true. It was predicted a thousand years before it happened and 600 years before there was even crucifixion. I know that I know that I know. Jesus died for my sins. I can't get over that. There's a celebration coming on Sunday when he rose from the dead, but the cross is the central symbol of Christianity because it is my hope, it is my destiny, it is the reason there is a church. And if you came with a friend, and maybe this is all new to you, and you can't imagine being forgiven for your sins. Imagine this. Paul described it well, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here is what was happening on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And you might look in the mirror and say, I, I don't look like any righteousness of God. I know, I know. But when you look at Jesus on the cross, he doesn't look like sin either. But if you could see with God's eyes for just a millisecond, you would see the miracle of the cross. And there would be no doubt why the cross is the central symbol of Christianity. It's, it's, it's too much just to talk about. We have to experience it. So we have designed an experience for you right now. On, on every campus, we're, we're going we're gonna to worship together for about 30 minutes. We're going to sing some songs. And at any time during that 30 minutes of worship, when you are ready, around the perimeter of your room, will be stations for communion. We want to invite you to go there with your family or whoever you came with and take the communion understanding 
This is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. There's also going to be some pastors on every campus. You'll be able to identify them. They'll be wearing a lanyard and they'll have their picture and their name on it. They're there for you to pray with you. Here's why. Isaiah 53 said, by his stripes, we are healed. The apostle Peter said, yes, that's spiritual healing, spiritual healing. And the apostle Matthew, he said, it's physical healing. By his stripes, we're physically healed. Both are true because God doesn't just want to heal your soul for eternity. He wants to heal your emotions now, your mental illness now, and your body now. If you need prayer for healing, whether it's body, soul, or spirit, at any time during this worship, feel free to find a pastor because we want to pray over you. Holy Father, it's just too much to imagine. You are too much. Too much for us to keep our mouths quiet. Too much for us to keep you to ourselves. Too much for us to sit and hear a story seated. We have to stand and we have to worship. We have to tell you now that the cross is the center of our lives. And we thank you for it. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we thank you for it. Amen.